I love this station. I absolutely love the station. Oh yeah. You guys are the best, best, best. It is the best station. <laughs> You're listening to Russell Prue, broadcasting on the Anderson Tiger Radio Network. By far my favourite station. You're the best. Oh, yeah. I love you guys. Uh, listeners, delighted to have the brilliant Professor Andy Fippin from uh, the University of Plymouth live on the telephone with me. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Just catch us up with where you are and where your interests are at the moment, please. Hi, Russell. Uh, really good to talk to you as always. Um... I think probably since the last time I spoke to you, I've gone a lot more legal, um, which is um, an interesting position to be in, but not just like, you know, talking about where the law's at, but why the law won't work. So so obviously I still spend plenty of time talking to young people, talking to people of all ages about their use of technology. And you see um, the emergence of legislation, the, the online harms. I hesitate to use the word white paper because it's the greenest white paper I've ever seen in my life. Um, um, and and the, the the focus seems to be on we're going to sort this out with technology and law. So so that's really where I'm at at the moment. I think I think you know my background is computer science. Um, so when I I see these politicians coming up with with the latest um, vote winning scheme to to protect children, you sit there and go well yeah great, but that's not actually technically possible. It does position one in a in an interesting place to be because well you don't want to just sit there and go that's not going to work again. You are sat there going, that's not going to work again. So, um, so, and it just it utterly um, detracts from what young people are saying. And so, so you know, I'm I'm still chugging along, but um, but it does seem to be that I'm spending way more time looking at where the legal position is, where it's going, and and what might work and what doesn't work. And just pick up in, just to pick up on that, uh, let's talk about end-to-end encryption because the, the government mm. have a very interesting view about how they're going to solve all of that. Uh, and we both share the same kind of background, so we can go into this. But let's just remember where our listeners are, probably mm-hmm. not so invested uh, in, in the technological solutions there. But they have a very interesting uh, view about how they're going to encrypt everything and then be able to unencrypt stuff when they want to look inside the box, don't they? Yes, it's it's a very interesting one. I mean, encryption is it was developed to make sure that our communications remain private, and um, it seems to be a perfectly reasonable thing for us to think that our communications should be private. Um, but obviously, sometimes the bad guys use communications technology for uh, in private for um, for less reputable or, or more worrying communications and, and sometimes people go well why why shouldn't we be able to see them so yeah the government's proposing that um, uh, you should only use encryption if there's backdoors into encryption so by backdoors I mean ways of breaking the encryption and they said oh you know those backdoors should be available to, to law enforcement which is utter nonsense really because <laughs> uh, either you have encrypted communication or you don't have encrypted communication you can't have a bit of encrypted communication because that's really, what we're going to bear in mind here is we're dealing with algorithms, we're dealing with computer code. Um, and it's not very good at subjective interpretation. So there's no way in a, a piece of code to go, are you a goodie? Yes, well, there you go, let's decrypt it for you. Are oh, you a bloody no word? Stay away from it. Um, and it, I think it demonstrates very clearly this discussion um, how poorly the policymakers understand the technology around them. I mean, um, Rather famously, there's a guy called John Perry Barlow who, who put forward, he's from the Electronic Fr- uh, Frontiers Foundation in the US, put forward a manifesto for the digital age many years ago where he basically said, governments don't try and legislate cyberspace, you won't be able to. 
um, as a, he, he was uh, reacting to a piece of U.S. legislation which was trying to control telecommunications markets. Mm. And he was just basically saying, you're not going to be able to do this because communication is global and legislation is national. Um, and I can remember a while ago when Amber Rudd was still Home Secretary, her saying that she couldn't see any reason why the general public would need encrypted communications anyway. Um, and, and those of us who are somewhat curmudgeonly in nature immediately came out with things like, well, you'd be very welcome to do online banking without encryption, Amber. Can you just tell me where you're going to do it? Because I'll sit there next to you and hoover up your bank details as you go. You know, we have very legitimate reasons why we might wish our communications to be private. You know, there was a time where we were told that, you know, anyone who thought the government did sniff on people's communications was a, a tinfoil-hatted conspiracy theorist. Then Edward Snowden came along and went, oh, actually, they do. And here's a load of details about what they've done in the past. Um, and while we might think at the moment, now, uh, there are different views on this, that our government is still vaguely liberal and, and vaguely progressive. Um, uh, so so why would they be snooping on our communications in a in a invasive way but what happens when you get a, a less progressive government who decide rather than just intercepting elite communications for the planning of illegal activities to decide to intercept those communications for maybe people who disagree with you politically you know it's it's a really scary sort of step forward it's a bit like um uh, the debates around governments enforcing vaccinations mm. While, while on paper it sounds vaguely sensible, you think, but but what happens when governments start to change what what the necessary vaccinations are and things like that? You you can't you can't base legislation on what the government is doing now. You need to be thinking about what the government might be doing in the future. So, so yeah, I just I just find the whole thing you know somewhat somewhat bizarre. We it, you have. You have the government rhetoric around, but terrorists use it. Do you want the terrorists to win? Yes, terrorists do use communication platforms to plan things. So do organised criminals. So do um, the the nastier areas of society. But but equally, they might plan those sorts of things in in pubs and in cafes. And um, I, I rather sarcastically referred to something the other day as surveillance crew. Eh? So. <laughs> Yeah, if if you have this expectation that you monitor all communications, do you put microphones in cafes as well? And do you then place the onus on the cafe owner to collect all of those conversations and then report them to the security services if there is anyone, for example, planning a burglary in said cafe? Mm. It's just a slippery slope. And we, we absolutely have a right to privacy. Indeed. And, you know, you know, the flip side of that is, well, I've got nothing to hide. I don't mind. Well, you know, the logical step to that is let's put surveillance cameras in your home then. You know, and, and we've generally got a pinch point where we decide that the surveillance is excessive, but the government is trying to convince us that what they're proposing isn't excessive, where I'd argue it is. Indeed. And when you've got the chief executive of Google saying that when he invites people into his private home because he has smart speakers installed, he feels it necessary to advise his visitors mm -hmm. that he has smart speakers. And so when you have someone who's leading technology in that fashion, who's responsible for its deployment, casting doubt upon it, how can we, the, the public, trust a government that may not be in post at the end of the afternoon? I mean, it's just... <laughs> <laughs> absolutely you, you know you don't know where things are going mm. um and, and that's the worrying thing is you know it's a it's a small step from we want to monitor illegal activity to we want to monitor activity we don't agree with 
Thank you. And then, then you become into very, very dangerous territory. I mean, Orwell wrote about it a long time ago. Indeed, indeed. Um, and you framed that beautifully. Can I now just maybe draw your attention to where we think it's going? If we could just, just kind of cast our minds forward to perhaps 10 years' time and mm-hmm. talk about some of the issues that we're wrestling with now that might determine how we might be using social media and engaging with folk electronically. I always remember a very interesting Star Trek episode that had the <laughs> net described now when they created this episode there was no such thing at that moment in time but but he used a, a, a digital card which got inserted into a keyboard and you see this in general practice where yep. you want yep. to authenticate a user it's done physically with a card being inserted into something are we likely to see um that kind of authentication as a requirement for social media posting for example um, I think we're probably beyond that already. I think it was more likely to become biometrics in nature. You know, we, we're already fairly accepting of biometrics for things like um, passwords on phones and um, various apps on phones. I think I probably have three apps on my phone that all require um, thumbprint authentication, and we seem quite comfortable with that. You, the problem with, with smart cards, which they discovered in the NHS, is people forget them, people leave them at the, in the cafeteria at lunchtime. So you end up with borrowing someone else's card, so the authentication immediately fails. You know, you, or you have someone coming in in the morning, logging in the terminal, and then letting anyone who fancies using it using it. Um, so we we have some challenges there. Um, biometrics is is one approach that that might help with that. There are again some interesting civil liberties angles on the use of biometrics, but um, I think we're becoming more accepting of things, certainly like fingerprinting, less so with. Uh, iris recognition and stuff but i think the other thing we need to sort of bear in mind in terms of the future is while we might think it's always on culture now we're nowhere near that i mean you look at where 5g is going um you look at the advent of constant live streaming you're gonna you're gonna end up with people sort of um (laughs) streaming their entire lives because the technology will make it utterly capable of doing that so i don't think we're going to have less social information flying around the the airways we're going to see more and more social information flying around which we you know very freely and happily share what do you think and how do we solve the issue of fake accounts and and i ask this question because there are i mean everyone's reporting a huge percentage nearly half of one's uh use of the platform has been attributed to fake accounts and, and mm-hmm. how, how do you think we solve that and i ask the question because those accounts and we have evidence now particularly with the analytica story and all the rest of the thing that's going along there how these accounts are being used to influence the electorate for example mm-hmm. And for our, our own opinions and stuff. I'm going to be the woolly liberal here now, as I, I generally am. And I, I think this sort of thing has to fall back to education. Um, the, the companies can do so much in terms of identifying um, fake accounts and taking them down. And, and they do have some success in doing so. However, we as a society need to be able to start to understand more accurately that these things do exist rather than just blindly trusting anything that's posted up online as, oh, that must be a real person. I mean, one only needs to visit Boris Johnson's Facebook page when you know a, a post pops up and then about uh, 200 people go, well done, Boris, that was great. I think, well, are all these people actually chosen to say exactly the same thing or are this just a bunch of fake accounts who are just um, immediately triggering as soon as something's posted up? Um, and we need to be more critical and we need to understand uh, how the digital world 
isn't necessarily reflective in uh, reflected in reality. I think that you know that draws back to all manner of education around this space. It was interesting. I was talking to um, the online safety leader at my kids' school the other day, and he just spent a session with his how he calls them digital champions, and he said, right. What, what do you think online safety education looks like? And they all went um, critical thinking. Um, none of them were saying we want um, lessons on porn or lessons on sexting or whatever. We want critical thinking because everything hinges on that. And I thought, you know, again, from the mouths of babes, um, they seem to have a far better and more sensible grasp on this sort of thing than, than the adult population who all just sit there with their arms folded going, well, Facebook's got to put a stop to this, hasn't it? You know, they, they can to a certain extent, but it's the same with with the discourse that happens on their platforms twitter blogged a while ago that they're very successful in taking down islamist rhetoric now however if they start to tackle far-right rhetoric they end up um flagging posts by people like donald trump and obviously um that might cause some problems if they're immediately taking down posts by the american president oh i don't know i think i could <laughs> I, I could quite easily argue a case for that as well it's certainly tidy up his punctuation oh my god <laughs> that, 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 that letter today oh dear. Yeah. <laughs> what can you say? I mean, often look at who wants to be a millionaire as a good indicator of our social, economic and educational skills. And most recently, it's been quite appalling. Even the host has been calling us all dumb Britain because some of the most, you know, but you know, we haven't got to a thousand pounds yet. And we've used all our lifelines for from a series of questions that you and I, uh, because... I don't know, we're so much older than the young folks yeah, are today, yeah. take for granted, and it's that kind of information there. So, so, so how do you think we'll be using? What will we be doing? Will we have Facebook in 10 years' time? Will we have Twitter? Will we have something like it? Will we want to share that? And I think you've touched on a little of that with the 5G capability, that people are likely to be, you know, head cam streaming everything. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um it's, it's kind of interesting what you're looking at with the platforms at the moment is kind of the ubiquity of messaging and stuff. So, so um, you know, Facebook acquired WhatsApp and they've got Instagram already and they're looking for unified messaging and things. It's almost like the the platforms are becoming less important and the, the control of the personal information is becoming more important as we're, it's less it's less important what platform we're on opposed to where our social interactions are happening. And... Um, you know, it used to be uh, Facebook or nothing. Now it's Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. Um, Twitter has morphed into something of a news channel. Mm. Um, um, so I, 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 I'm sure Facebook as a company will still exist and be still very, very successful. But but they seem to be moving into um, like personal and group communications as much as the social media platform. I think we might be looking at social media platforms as they are at the moment and thinking they're ever so cute and naive. 10 years time because we can just choose who we broadcast our information to and um the platforms will provide us with that and, and happily hoover up all the conversations we're having and analyze us and then target us with marketing and, and other things as a result of this information we freely give but i think it's that the platforms are going to become less ubiquitous i would suggest okay and is there ever going to be the possibility of living off grid um it's, it would be bloody hard work to do that. I think uh, you know it's, it's it's now getting to the point where online banking is cheaper. Tax returns are becoming entirely online. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, it's almost like you, you'd have to make a concerted effort and a continuous concerted effort to do that. Um, 
Uh, yeah, I think it's going to become more and more difficult. You know, we, we convince ourselves that we use these devices all the time for our own convenience. But um, there's certainly a compulsion there as well. And you, know, you completely get why companies want us to interact with them online because it's a damn sight cheaper than face-to-face interactions. And the fact that you will have to do your tax returns digitally basically means if you are running a business or you have a level of employment beyond PAYE, you mm. have to be online. Yes. Otherwise, you, you can't exist in the commercial world. Nope. Um, yeah, increasingly, car parks are uh, app-based and you know, it's, it, 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 there is value there to, to industry and we sort of like go along with it because there's convenience for us as well. Indeed. Um, I worry enormously about the energy. Where's the energy going to continue to come from to make all of this possible? Um, I just keep it. I, I, I saw some stats a couple of days ago about if you do a Google search for this, it's the equivalent of X numbers of, of cups of tea uh, or, or boiling X numbers of kettles and things that the, the energy consumption is becoming more and more concentrated. I mean, we don't actually know where Google servers reside. However, we do know they consume massive amounts of electricity. I think I saw something a while ago that said a server farm uses about 10 times more electricity than a regular office block. Um, so it will become more and more concentrated. Um, we are fully aware that there's a, an energy crisis looming. Um, there seems to be a greater drive for renewables and, and similar. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that, that there isn't a, an infinite supply of energy and the more reliant we become on these things. The, and you can tie it in then with, with where cars are going and similar. So we, we're moving towards electric cars. We're moving towards autonomous cars. So yeah. there'll be more energy requirements there. So you'd hope someone in charge would be reflecting on this and... and developing infrastructure for the future let's let's cross our fingers and hope shall we well i was going to say have you have you seen or heard of that <laughs> taking place well, you know the, the energy companies are, are arguing that smart meterings are, are a way of better understanding our energy consumption and providing a better service um uh, if i was a cynical person and you've known me for a long time russ you know i'm not cynical i might suggest that they're, they're doing that because it makes their job easier because they don't have to send people around to read your meter and things anymore but they are using the smart metering argument as a way of saying, you know, this will help us with energy strategy in the future. I'll remain cynical. No, I, I like a healthy dose of cynicism is always very welcome on almost <laughs> everything. I, th- I think it's really good. It just helps me get through the day, if anything. Um, I, I wonder whether there is an, you know, an opportunity to go back to how things were, you know, 150 years ago in, <laughs> in the hope that the planet could be given some time to recover. But as you've all rightly said, this is a global issue and that would mm-hmm. be only something that we could afford to do here. You know, I have no idea what's going to happen on the 1st of November or whether uh-huh. we'll be, you know, asking to buy things with three hamsters and have you got change for my chicken. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's going to happen. But I wonder whether there is an opportunity to, to kind of, you know, hark back to those days where where life was so much simpler than it is now. I wouldn't even say 150 years ago. I mean, you watch sitcom from the 70s and you sort of look at those and go, wow, was life a lot simpler back then? Um, but but um, I think it would take a massive in, uh, massive disastrous impact for us to to decide to dissuade ourselves from from the use of our devices because of the massive amount of convenience. I mean, I guess it's not all bad. I mean, there's there's lots of arguments that um, connectivity means that we don't have to move into urban spaces where powers consume more. We don't have to travel so much. Um, we can work from home more. 
but I do worry that the carbon generation is just moving from one space to another then. So, you know, if you're at home more, then you're using more water at home and, and those, all those sorts of things as well. Um, but, but I think it, it's very difficult to, to put the genie back in the bottle, isn't it? And, um, you know, it, we've, we've known for a long time that climate change is, is, is a bad thing and, and we are close to uh, some fairly bad things happening, but it requires us to drive less and um not go on so many holidays and individually we kind of no no i think everyone else should do that but but i'm i'm fine with with doing what i'm doing um and you know that really requires the the cultural change again indeed and once upon a time you could have hidden the fact that you took a private jet uh to a a different continent but now that is impossible to do um Mm -hmm. can i just finally ask you about your students that you're currently teaching what is Mm -hmm. their long-term prognosis how upbeat or downbeat would you say they are that's a really interesting question i see some you know very positive things certainly tech students are looking at very lucrative careers in the future. Um, you know, the, the the digital sector can't fill by anywhere near the demand. So if, if anyone's listening and thinking of a, a career in technology, go do a computer science degree because you will be pretty much guaranteed a job. Um, more more generally, socially, I, I don't see um, connectivity as something that's having a massively positive impact upon them. I mean, we, I have a PhD student at the moment looking at the role tech plays in, in digital, in students' lives. And a lot of them talk about loneliness a great deal. You know, they, they interact with a lot of people, but they don't have many friends because their interactions are all digital. So, so you're losing that human contact. I also fear that as a sector, we are excessively collecting data upon students and, and stressing them out with some of these digital platforms. So, so you know, we, we talk quite a lot about anti-plagiarism software and plagiarism detection systems and it it really does get to a point where some of the students i speak to are utterly terrified of these you know systems that exist in the ether that (laughs) that will find out whether they're cheating and and fail them if they are and that's really not the role that they they were supposed to be there for they were supposed to flag up areas of potential plagiarism that that the the member of staff might like to check out there but they are again being used poorly and being applied in in a manner for which perhaps they weren't being developed. So one of the things I I have been banging on about for about five years now is never mind in schools. We really need digital awareness, what digital literacy actually means in the university sector. We know there's there's been a few fairly high-profile cases, such as what's happening at Warwick at the moment, of some fairly horrendous um, abuse online that the institutions really haven't responded to. Um, So as a sector, they really need to pull their socks up I think and actually understand I remember going to one institution a while ago and saying oh we're really worried about mental health so what we've done we've bought this software platform that if we haven't heard from them for a while it sends them a text message and I just sort of looked at the went, so we're already overloading students with digital information and what you're saying is we're that concerned about you here's an anonymous text message just to say how's Some things more. doing oh geez. you know it'll send them over the edge and you know, I, I think as well, we, we, we are still struggling with the, the concept of consent around the use of people's information. Yes. And I see, I see a lot of abuse in the university sector. And that we, we have their mobile phone for one thing, therefore we'll use it for something else. Or, or let's just share that information. You know, there's, there's a lot of concerns there. And, and it's only the fact that public knowledge isn't sufficiently um, embedded around our data protection rights that I think people aren't getting sued more often. 
and can I just now throw a finally, finally, and because you've just prompted a very interesting there, do your students feel that they have the right currently to complain or a right of redress if they feel that their information has been used incorrectly? And that's a perfect opportunity, I think, to kind of wrap things up on that topic, because I wonder whether if they feel that they're being bothered, do they feel sufficiently empowered to be able to take themselves away from those platforms? Very, very simple answer. That is no. Um, you know, they have messages in schools drummed into them that once it's online, it's always online. You shouldn't have done that. Um, anything that goes wrong online is your fault. So so if they feel like their information is being excessively collected or abused, they'll kind of just go, well, it's my fault. I, you know, there, there is uh, an absolute utter lack of awareness of what our rights are generally. You know, I always come back to the, the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. You know, we, we, we ratified that in 1989. However, no one seems to apply it. And um, certainly isn't is the, the students I see now until they come into my class and then they become a little bit more militant. They don't really understand their data protection rights until I point them out to them. Okay, I, and that's really good. I just hope the fact that they, they have the power and the capacity to be able to exercise those rights. And I think I, I, what I've learned from a conversation is and it's, it's about exercising one's rights. Yeah, absolutely. Knowing one's rights and actually understanding you have a right to know these things. You know, the, I, I always come back to the fact that online safety messaging in schools really hasn't changed in the last 10 years. So, so the sorts of messages we were delivering 10 years ago, mm. those are now adults. So we're seeing the knock-on from that as well. You know, you've known me a long time. I always come back to education, and education is far more important than technical intervention. Um, yet we're still not doing it very well. No, we're not. And we're not changing behaviour, which is the thing there. Um, Andy, just amazing. Uh, 25 minutes of pulsating brilliance, I have to say. And, five minutes. Wow. I uh, know time does fly when you're having a, a, a ball. Thank you. Thank you so much indeed for joining us. You've really opened our eyes and uh, good luck with uh, your students this year. Thanks very much, Russ. Always good to talk to you. I love you guys. You are now about to witness the strength of street you're listening to Russell Prue, broadcasting on the Anderson Tiger Radio Network. I don't understand what's going on here.